we all think we just popped into existence, right? I mean, even if we we don't think that we live that way, modern man lives that way. And it's important that we point out as a first principle, as a foundation, that we were created. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by David Forced Extrinsic Imposition Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? <laughs> as I was reading that chapter, I was like, no way. At that paragraph, I was like, no way I'm explaining that one. Gomer can have that one all to him. So he wanted this. He's got it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's got to come from the inside. It's got to be intrinsic. How you doing, Dave? I'm good. Hey, uh, so I did something cool this weekend. Yeah, so, Jazzercise. You finally went to that Jazzercise competition. Yeah, yeah. and I won. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I won strongest Jazzercise, <laughs> jazziest Jazzercise. Um, mm. no, I had an event in Allentown, uh, nice. Pennsylvania, and it was a great event. But afterwards, somebody was like. I don't remember what the reference was, but somebody was like, you know, there's that priest who was in the gulag. You know, he's buried like a mile from here. They're talking about Father Walter Chizek, who oh, I love yeah. Father Walter Chizek. So I so anyways, I was like, what? He's buried a mile from here. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyways, the next morning we woke up early, went to mass, and then we were able to just right on our way out, go and see the grave of Father Walter Chizek. And it was that's awesome. It was neat. It's on this beautiful Jesuit property, which I guess is being sold for secular purposes, but it's a, it's like, it, it's really amazing. Like just to, just to see him, just a name amongst probably many saints, you know, but, uh, yeah. you know, such an incredible man. Wow. What, what was his famous, uh, book, famous work, uh, he, that he wrote? There? He leadeth me is one of them. Yeah. That's yeah. the one that everyone tells you like to get introduced, read that book. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is fantastic. And just his life and also just like the, it exposes you to a side of the Jesuits that you never, most of us growing up in our generation have, have absolutely no clue about, you know, because, you know, I mean, the Jesuits lost their way so much and not all of them. I'm not going to just, you know, make the sweeping yeah. judgment, but so much of, so many of them did. And this is like a time when the Pope is literally like sending secret Jesuits into communist Russia. You know, they're being smuggled in so at times by like criminals and stuff like that to evangelize. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing. He spent I think he spent 23 years in Russia. Most of it was in the gulag. So most of it he was captured. Yeah, it's just an incredible story. Yeah. Well, alrighty, how uh, how's Amber doing progress? So doing well. Uh, she's not feeling good this week, but we won't get another progress report for a couple weeks, so okay. we'll see. But yeah, thanks for asking. All right. And what? How are things? The Gormley family. Yeah, has been doubling our prayers for because oh, we're just like, yes, Lord. I know it's like a snowball, isn't it? Low. It makes me the same way. Like I won't sleep for the next seven weeks, and I'll just pray. <laughs> Saint Simeon yeah. Stylites. Oh man, what a what a what a useless saint! Stop saying what a useless I hate saint when you say that. <laughs> I hate when you say that. And literally, hey, I'm gonna climb up on a pillar and be in a basket and make everyone serve you, me for years. Not only that, but like it, you've made me even not like the professor who used to say that. Now, <laughs> why? Whatever do you mean? Now, Benedict, there was a saint whose holiness changed the world. Ah, <laughs> oh, good time. So today we're gonna talk 
about the sacramentality of creation and history as I subtly bystep David's comment uh, about my own family. <laughs> you were about to say, so how's your family? And I'm like, nope, nope, yeah, not going there right. today. No, we had a good St. Nick's Day. Today's feast day St. Nick. We always do a nice little pajama tradition and stuff like that. And then I decided to get him some gifts on top of of the of the tradition of we don't give them gold coins of chocolate. We give them pajamas because like half my kids are allergic to the world. So this has been a nice like little thing. But then, of course, whenever there's presents involved, the snottiness of kids become manifest. I'm like, well, I don't want that. And then they fight each other over. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. Uh, just let me talk about the sacramentality of creation and history. Am I right? Well, I guess so. I mean, if that came out of one of my kids' mouths, they would know that it was their last word. So they might follow it up with, <laughs> I love you and tell my mom I love her too. <laughs> I'm going to a dark place now. I love you. Don't give my toys away. Yeah. No. So uh, we are now on uh, two, <laughs> chapter two, point B. So we're talking about the sacramentality of creation and history. And I want to just pause this moment because this is the Cardinal Ratzinger moment. This is the Joseph Ratzinger, the biblical theologian moment, meaning at Vatican II, his weight as a theologian was most particularly applied to Dehi Verbum, the church's document on sacred scripture, specifically grounding its historical character, right? That this is Yahweh interacting with real people in concrete events throughout history. It's not a static thing. I was talking with this one woman who was rejecting Christianity because of the Bible, you know, which she's never read. And she just had this image of the Bible being written down by one guy. And I'm like, I think you're thinking of the Quran because that is not the Bible, right? right? These aren't mystics who go up on mountaintops. This is the lived experience of a people with all of their faults, which the Bible records every single one of them in their dealings with with Yahweh. And so in their failings with Yahweh in a big way and um, getting people to see that that God and creation and history are all the stage in which our salvation is set, that God doesn't come to us outside of or anesthetized from history, right? He enters, he plunges himself into the middle of it. So if you think about that, we have creation on the one side, and we're talking about the sacramentality of creation. We have creation on the one side and history on the other. That's what this section is going to go through. So where else do we start? But God, the creator. So Dave, take it away. Yeah, and uh, it comes out with it. Uh, probably in your mind, overly simple, but also profound point was that uh, it says the according to the biblical witness, creation is the first step of the divine economy. And I think that probably what the writers are thinking here and making that the first sentence is we all think we just popped into existence, right? I mean, even if we we don't think that we live that way, modern man lives that way. And it's important uh, that we point out as a first principle, as a foundation that we were created, and that was the first act of God coming towards us, of entering into a relationship, was this act of creation. So it's important to understand that. And and it ends with this beautiful sentence basically saying, but because of the overflowing fullness of love that he himself is, in order to distribute its benefits to beings capable of receiving them and responding from the loving logic that presides over creation itself, basically saying that God creates. Why? Because he is love. God is love, and he wants to be in a community of love and to share his love. It's fecundity, 
Fecundity. Oh, oh nice. <laughs> Fecundity. Um, so whenever I evangelize people, part of my evangelizing message is understanding what Genesis 1 and 2 says about the creator. And I love this. I would also encourage you to read the, just the first paragraph of the catechism, which lays this out, which is, why did God create? It's not because he had to. It's because he wanted to, meaning it was a freely done. It was done solely through his divine sovereign power. Nothing compelled him. There was no lack in him. There was no necessity within God that caused him to create. He is the uncaused causer, right? He himself has no cause. And while we can get lost in the metaphysics and the theology of that, the very practically speaking, when it comes to human relationships, God was free to create. And entering into this, this freedom of God characterizes the entire way that he elected, he chose to save us, right? So this is not mediated whenever we talk about the new covenant or the many old covenants, when we talk about the law, when we talk about creation itself, this is not because God has to, it's always motivated by his divine love, right? It is always motivated by a self gift and then a reception. And that reception is what we call faith, right? So going into paragraph 23, the sacramentality of creation, you can't have the sacraments without a sacramentality. Remember earlier in the last episode, we talked about that when God speaks to us, he has to speak in the mode of the receiver. He communicates in a human way. Why? Because we're the ones he's communicating to. So when the father creates, he creates through the word and the spirit. And this is important because that means the logos, the word of God shapes all of creation. So you go to John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him. And if the word of God is that by which the father creates, and the breath or ruah in Hebrew, the spirit of God is also that by which the father creates, that means everything in creation points us back towards the creator, that God puts his mark on creation. And so we say, this paragraph says, in an analogical sense, in as much as in itself, it is its own constitutive creature being. There is a reference to its creator, which allows it to be later. And I love this. To me, I reread this paragraph a dozen times because of this. So because of it's created initially in the, in the, the God, the father creates through the word and the spirit, this allows it to be later elevated and consummated elevated and consummated in the redemptive work, so in the word becoming incarnate, without any forced extrinsic imposition, meaning the book of nature really does reveal God, the act of creation reveals the creator, but that also makes it capable of housing, as it were, the logos, the word of God made flesh to accomplish his redemption. So, so both Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict will come back to this point hundreds of times in their pontificates, yeah. right? Pope Pope Benedict says, you know, that creation is the place made to encounter God, right? That that's what this is, that the world is a place made to encounter God. And Pope John Paul goes even further. I think it was like in Sacramentum Orientalis or something like that, where he talks about the Eucharist as being the, the point of every bit of creation that in the Eucharist mm-hmm. is realized the, the entirety of creation, just like, the language that we use, like that we know ourselves in the light of Christ, he uses that for creation in the light of the Eucharist, and it's really amazing. Oh, that is beautiful. I mean, if you think about it. Yeah, I don't it, remember the document, the, but I think that was it. If creation is sacramental, 
because it's the expression and communication of God's very self as creator. And if the word participates in it, how, I mean, how beautiful is it that first the word becomes flesh, or the very structure of the universe becomes flesh, right? And then within that context, he gives himself in yet a still more sacramental way that nourishes the very creation that responds to it. I, I think that's awesome. So then we go from this <laughs> from this redemptive work without any forced extrinsic imposition <laughs> all the way to the human person. And last time, if you remember, I said, um, this is the beginning. So last week we had a quote about the human way. And Dave said, oh, this is the you take this paragraph, it's a little theology of the body stuff. This is where it actually goes much more in depth into relying on sexual difference as an analogy for human faith. So the human person responds to God. To God. Yeah. And so uh, in this paragraph, we're going to talk about how humanity is made in the image and likeness of God and in the different ways. And this document talks about St. Paul underlining it, saying that we are the image of the invisible God. And he said, and it says, since the first Adam was the figure of the one who was to come, this makes the human person a being in whom God's self-giving in creation can find a personal and free response for any I love that I, I know I know for in the image of God the human person also more intensely realizes his own being identity what we spoke about before the more he gives himself in a relationship of love otherness so what they're saying here is this that the human person was created specifically for freedom and that freedom being to love and to reciprocate the love that God gives to us, to respond fully to the love that God gives to us and that we realize who we are, our true identity in that love, in that relationship, not just with God, but in that, in that relationship with God and in the relationship with others in God. Yeah. And this is right where paragraph 25 flows. So if I'm made in the image and likeness of God, and Christ is, as Colossians 1.15 says, the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is the perfect and infinite image, and human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. This, again, is the trace of the logos within us. This means that we have, and I love this phrase in Latin, capax dei, the capacity <laughs> to have God, this, this God-shaped hole in our hearts, as Soren Kierkegaard said, right? This notion that I am, unlike the rest of the animals, which are very limited and, and you know, they don't have freedom and they don't have intelligent, uh, you know, intelligence and the ability to understand, to love and to know the way we do. Our capacity to respond to God is highlighted in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And the document points out the two ways that we image God the most, the way it's reflected in human action is through our capacity for communion with others like us and for service, to serve others out of pure love. If the Trinitarian God is essentially communion and interpersonal relationship, the human person as the image of God has been created to live in communion and interpersonal relationship. And this is expressed magnificently, the document says, in sexual difference, right? So it's God reveals his own relationality within himself in the sexual difference between man and woman. Okay, awesome. And I just want to point out that, you know, when when you when you do theology, what it means to do theology is to connect points that weren't there before, right? To to connect and to bring authors together, to clash them, to connect points that aren't there. That, you know, it says that God gave freely. He didn't have to create, he didn't have to love, he didn't have to do that. It wasn't a, a limit on him. He 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 gave freely. And so we have to apply that to our relationships, right? That yeah. in service it should be a free service. And so 
this is why I mean, we're get, I'm getting off topic here, but this is why like the church does comment on things like politics, on things like welfare, on things like charity, on things like that, because they're so protective, like a mama bear, of our ability to act in the same image of God, giving freely as opposed to being forced or coerced. Mm. So then this life with or, or as the Imago Dei. So we reflect God as finite, limited creatures. But the problem is the, the structure of the human person has to deal with our failure with sin and all of that stuff. But that doesn't mean the Imago Dei is destroyed. So you go to paragraph 26. We are relational beings. And I love this. So you have 25 is sexual difference, expressing our relationality and this capacity for communion. 26 goes through, and I literally use this with my confirmation students last Wednesday. Are you joking? Um, this is, I a, am not this joking. is a difficult paragraph. <laughs> I loved it so much. So 26 is how language belongs solely to the symbolic order. And 27 talks about the human person revealed through delegated government over creation or human activity, which is very important in understanding the sacrament. So again, everything is about the sacrament. So we're talking about the human person responding. So first is the Imago Dei. Second is how sexual difference reveals this capacity for relationship and um, communion. Well, this one, the symbolic order, I think is so important. So the way we understand reality around us, the way we understand one another is by putting words and phrases to it, right? By talking, by communicating. So part of our communion is manifested through communicating, right? And animals don't have language, right? They don't have language like we do. That's one of the greatest things. The word separates us from animals. And the funny thing is, I don't know if you know this, Dave, but you can teach primates sign language. But the primates cannot teach their children. They can't hand anything on. The only thing that gets passed on is the the instincts, the learned behavior of doing sign language to, you know, more food or whatever. It immediately fades away. They can't communicate that. So this means not only do they not have language, but they don't have culture. And that's one of the fascinating things that separates us from animals. But when you look at what is language, language is symbolic order. Mean like think about right. numbers. This is what I said to the high school students. I said, think about numbers. Like everyone in this room knows that math is real, but the number one isn't the same thing as the abstract concept of oneness. Right. Right? It's an Arabic numeral that was invented, you know, whatever, six hundred years before Christ, or I don't know how old the Arabic numbers are. But we have humanity usually uses letters for to to stand in the place of numbers, but using the Arabic numerals allowed us, especially the number zero, right, allowed us to create entire systems of math and understand the world around us. But they're symbols. But the symbols, they correspond to reality and language as symbolic expression, right? We use words to symbolize emotion, states, whatever it might be, places. We realize our own being, this is what the document says, in the sphere of symbolic expression. Right. And I said this to the kids. Now, I don't know how well it was received, uh, but just think about that, that our very words like maps on a page. Right. The map is in L.A., but in a certain sense, the map tells you more about L.A. than just looking at it would. Right. And so this symbolic order actually helps us to achieve a greater understanding than we ever could without it, even through experience. Right. So this necessary layers the argument about the sacramentality of creation. Yeah, we talked about it last week, right? Um, 
it echoes back, right? The, the paragraph before this is about the, the sexual bond between man and woman. And then mm-hmm. this is relation. This is communication. We talked about that last week, you know, that, that it's both, it's the physical and, and the communication wise. So it, it, it echoes back. And now think about this in relation to the, the very first episode, the crises in the sacraments today. And one of it is a nominalism, right? Like William Lane Craig, famous Protestant apologist is a nominalist. Like he believes in nominalism, right? And so this idea of separating what our words mean. So the rational understanding of the universe from the universe, from being itself, right? That's what nominalism does. And yet here they're trying to show, listen, we, if we, we cannot communicate ourselves to one another, we can't be in communion with one another. If the symbols we use, aka language, doesn't actually connect us to the being we're referring to, right? And so that's why the sacraments matter because the last sentence of this paragraph, they faithfully and efficiently gather, express, develop, and strengthen this rich interpersonal framework. I, the next paragraph is my favorite. Cause it's, is it really? Yeah, is I love it. Really? I love it. Yeah. Because uh, it talks about basically. Because everything with you is political. No, it's not. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's qu- quite the opposite. I, I'm, I'm thinking more of my uh, transcendentalist friends when I read this paragraph than I am, than I am, than I am the, the, you know, political things. But uh, it talks about how man by God is given part in, in exercising uh, dominion over creation. Okay, that God gives us uh, dominion over creation. We know this, you know, he has Adam name the animals and all these things. Okay, that's a, that's a, probably a common thing that we all know about. But in the end sentence is my favorite. He says, in this way, the human person leads creation through a kind of cosmic priesthood towards its true purpose, the manifestation of the glory of God. And I love that paragraph because... We lost it. I mean, we really have lost it. Uh, that creation is no longer really. It, it's become either a victim um, that we're like dying to save, or it's become something that we destroy. We have lost the sense of like creation being a manifestation of the glory of God. And um, you know, I think about Pope John Paul II because if you've ever read his poetry, this is what it's all, every bit of his poetry is about the Ruah, you know, running through creation. And he, he uses like yeah. such weird, similar language to experiencing God in creation as he does it in like something like adoration or in the Eucharist. So it's like for Pope John Paul, it was like, I think cause he was a mystic creation was like us, you know, it was a sacrament to him, which it should be to all of us. Yeah. And so if you have a sacramental view of creation, what do, and you're, you're an Imago Dei, you're made in the image and likeness of God. So we have creation is charged with the word of God. You are made in the image and likeness of God, right? And then our response, even the way physically we are made, resembles this interpersonal communion that is in the Godhead. Then when we look at our language, our language is vested with both rationality and symbolism united together. When we look at human activity, which is the whole point of paragraph 27, human activity in the world should be directed towards the glorification of God. And that's the cosmic priesthood. Also, cosmic priesthood was the name of my first alt rock album. But anyway, (laughs) uh, (laughs) so this understanding, like there's a very Jewish understanding of Adam being the first priest. Yeah. 
of all creation, right? So what was he doing? I mean, when people don't have a sacramental liturgical worldview, you lose sight. Like, what do you mean Adam the first priest? He was a king and queen, maybe, sure. But, well, the language of, of the whole creation was this temple language. And when you begin to build this sacramental worldview and you're looking at, uh, I have a title of a chapter I'm working on called The World with the Temple as its Center. If you view the Garden of Eden as the sacred central place, you can understand why the first murder was done over worship, right? It was Cain offering an, a poor sacrifice and Abel offering a good one. Like the first thing Noah does when he gets out the boat, y'all, is build an altar and offer sacrifice over and over. How does God deliver Israel? Through a ritual sacrifice and family meal. Like this is at the heart of how God works. The sacramental love of the Father to the Son through the Spirit allows us to participate in the Trinitarian life. So then we go into paragraph 28. Wait, what was the name of the chapter? The name of the chapter you're working on? Uh, The creation with the temple at the center. That's that's a terrible name. I would skip that chapter for sure. We need to to redo that name. Hey, hey, listen, listen. No, it's called the world with the temple at its center. That's ter- How terrible. You? This is the you're w- terrible. You're not good at naming things. Okay, all right. Let's I know go. I'm not. <laughs> I'm really not. I'm really not. Onwards to the sacramentality of history. While I uh, go to cry by we, my pillow. We, How dare you? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. As if I could hurt that. <laughs> sacramentality of history. Uh, uh, this probably was the more comfortable paragraph for you to read. It, I, th- I found it very, very readable and easy to understand. But it starts out by saying God's desire to communicate his gifts is not restricted to leaving the imprint of his love and creation. And that is awesome. An awesome sentence. What he's saying, what he's saying is what Gomer explained at the beginning, the imprint of Pope Benedict, the 16th, right. Of his theology, that this is the story of the people of the, of Israel and how God interacts with them. And that, that, uh, story, that history is a sacrament, right? Is a sac, there's sacramentality there, the history of how God works with his people. It's a very straightforward, you know, talks about the good and the bad and, and leads us right into kind of where this all comes together. Uh, paragraph 29 is about sin. So it talks about, you know, God loving his people, uh, interacting with them, interacting in real history with their mistakes, with their fallings, uh, with their triumphs, all those things. And it leads us into even interacting in their sin. Yeah, we can't understand the story of salvation. If you want to break it down, like I did for the parish mission last night, if you look at the story of Genesis chapter two and three, it is the story of Emmanuel, God with us, right? What is God? What is the story of Israel? But God trying to be present to his people. But what the people want and what you and I want is we want God and we want our own will as well. We want both. We don't want to do what the incarnation is, which is the human will of Jesus is perfectly in alignment with the divine will. We want to have a little bit of our, you know, have our cake and eat it too. have a little bit of God and a little bit of sin and a little bit of the world. But these things, the scriptures want to understand. They want to drive home this point. They want us to understand that sin and God can never be reconciled. And so God's presence is, you could say, chased out of the garden. We ran from him. We ran from his presence, right? That's the whole point of Adam and Eve jumping into the shrubbery, right? Is we're running from his presence. So the story of Israel is God constantly coming to be present with their people, but they, like the story of Mount Sinai, right? As soon as God comes in his full glory on the mountain, 
they make a golden calf and worship in, in their in their bacchanal down at the foot of the mountain. They do their false worship and all that stuff. Their idolatry. This is constantly, we want a God made in our image. We want a God of war. We want a God of violence. We want a God of seduction and beauty because when we worship those gods, that's what, I mean, they become the external manifestation of what's really going on in our lives. We want to worship sex. We want to worship strength and power, blah, blah, blah. But what God wants to do is rip all the idols out of our heart, out of our lives. And the story of the people of Israel is the story of every human heart. Dr. Han used to always say, the moment you don't understand a sin in the Old Testament, you don't understand it, the story well enough, yeah. right? You need to keep going back to that story because this is the the confusion of a people like ourselves who have an expectation of God intervening in their lives, God not showing up in the way they demand, and then them leaving God, right, over and over and over again. Yeah. And, uh, and that point at the beginning, you know, basically that we're not deists. God didn't just create creation to speak to him. He also interacts with us continually and it continues on. Paragraph 29 specifically gets into sin. It's, and there's this one sentence that kind of hits the, hits the nail on the head here. It says, however, it is also true that despite God's insistence, men do not always accept this offer of love, right? That God freely gives the love but men do not always accept it. And this is like, you know, why we need the Savior, okay? It goes on to say, the history of Israel and that of humanity can be understood as an eager search for God to conquer again the cordial friendship with man when it has been lost. That this is the beauty and this is the, the you know, when I always say that, you know, we have a God who comes after us, who romances us, who never forgets, right? That that's what he is trying to do is to to once again introduce us to that love and and uh, invite a response of us to accept where we have rejected that love through sin. And I love how it ends with this typological understanding of, of how we relate to the Old Testament. Um, from this, we can understand the profound sense that many of the cultural signs of the Old Testament salvific order, so the way they related the Jewish people or the Israelite people to the temple, to all the other, you know, the events that occurred with the patriarchs, you know, Abraham offering Isaac, all that stuff. We can understand that they have a meaning of expiation or reconciliation with God. And all of those different strands are caught up in Christ, right? Are caught up in Christ. And that's why the document immediately goes from, we just read subsection B to subsection C, the incarnation. And it has three main points that we want to get to right after we take this quick break. Throw it out to our homeboys and girls at Ascension, but be sure to email us at, Ascent at EKSB at AscensionPress.com if you want to hear from more. We have about five emails that are really great to kind of push uh, on different parts of the, the thread that we've been pulling here on the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments. We want to hammer home like this is a most important document. It's an incredibly timely document for the church. So if you have questions, if you have thoughts where we can apply this, please, please, please Email us, EKSB at EssentialPress.com. And when we're kind of done with the series, we will go through it. All right. Two thousand years ago, Jesus Christ chose corrupt, broken, imperfect sinful men to be the foundation of his church and because these broken imperfect men chose to remain in relationship with jesus 
they became saints and they were used by Jesus to transform hearts and minds 2,000 years later. I invite you to check out my book, Broken and Blessed, where you'll find practical tools to overcome habitual sin, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and to walk with an imperfect church toward a perfect God who is calling all of us to perfection over time. To order the paperback book or audiobook, Broken and Blessed, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. All right, we're back, and I'm going to throw it out to David, the external forced intrinsic exposition, Van Vickle. <laughs> I was trying to remember what it was, but I couldn't. So I scrolled upwards feverishly. It's so funny now how when people email us, it always has a name, a nickname yeah, oh, for me. Oh, yeah, I should have mentioned that. You're not allowed to email us unless you have yet another Dave Van Vickle <laughs> nickname. That'd be great. So in this uh, this background of uh, the sacramentality of history, and in particular, sin bursts onto the scene. The next paragraph, paragraph 30, first paragraph of section C, it's labeled the incarnation center, summit, and key to the sacramental economy. And this is... This is our wheelhouse here. We love the incarnation. We love the incarnation on EKSB. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read a little you, bit here. Jeff Cavins doesn't love it. You're not going to get on any of the other ascension. <laughs> no, just kidding. nothing. <laughs> nothing like what we love it. Bible timeline. Nope. No. Nope. Has nothing to do with the incarnation. <laughs> uh, God's <laughs> desire to give himself acquires its insurpassable summit in Jesus Christ. By virtue of this hypostatic union, the humanity of Christ, true man, in all things like unto us, save in sin, is the humanity of the Son of God, the eternal Word incarnate. And what it goes on to say is Christ is the sacrament. He is the sacrament. When we talk about sacraments, what we're talking about are encounters with this, with the hypostasis, with the the God-man, right? The 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 God who who took on flesh. Uh, and was like us all in all things except for sin. So that's what this paragraph is about. It's about the fact that in Jesus Christ, all of these things are brought to a close. All of these things are brought to fulfillment. All of the things that we're talking about, this is the sacrament of sacraments, right? That, that everything points to an encounter with him. And so this flows. So who Jesus Christ is, the union of the divine and human, flows right into paragraph 31, the humanity of the glorious crucified one, the foundation of the sacraments. Now, brothers and sisters, I can't hammer this home enough. We have to realize that the sacramental order is essential, not just because it speaks to us of the goodness of creation, but because the logos, the word of God shaped all of creation. So when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the way we encounter the incarnate word, right? The way we encounter the word of God is through the incarnate Jesus, right? So when you encounter, when you see the human face of Christ, you see the face of God. You see the face of the word incarnate. So what creation pointed us to is realized, the document says, in an imminent way in the humanity of Jesus Christ. This is why the Franciscan turn in the Catholic Church was so important, especially in the Middle Ages, because what was happening was you had a lot of people focusing solely on the divinity of Christ, which is very important. Don't The problem is it's a both-and thing. But you had this almost exclusionary tone kind of dismissing 
the humanity of Jesus. And Francis of Assisi helped to double down and recall the humanity of Christ. And so the nativity, which, you know, we're going through Advent right now, the nativity of Christ was driving him a visual way that we can participate in the humanity of Christ, baby Jesus. And now we don't think that Christ is still like the six pound, eight ounce, sweet little baby Jesus, but we do acknowledge, right? Like that the God of the universe became a zygote, right? The God of the universe was gestated in the womb of Mary. The God of the universe was born and he wasn't just born. He was born in a stable, laid in a food trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes. All of this points to the word of God in Christ Jesus communicating all that God has to us. And so when we look at um, salvation history and it culminates in Jesus Christ and his story, we can't just stop at the death of Jesus and think, well, that's what, sal- that's what won my salvation. It's not just the death of Jesus. It's not just the resurrection of Jesus. All of the words and deeds of Jesus from the moment of the incarnation in the womb of Mary at the Annunciation up to his glorious ascension into heaven, all the words and deeds of Jesus are qualified by the incarnation. Everything is inscribed with this sacramental logic. And so it's through the body of Christ, the humanity of Christ disclosed through the body, that we now have a sacramental church. So this is what it says. Thus we understand that Jesus Christ concentrates the foundation and source of all sacramentality, which then unfolds in the different sacramental signs that generate the church, where there are gathered unique aspects and dense moments of his life. So he goes through the different sacraments and says, like, for instance, the forgiveness of sins in when Jesus forgives someone, like the paralytic in today's reading, that reflects the pen, the sacrament of penance, the healing of the sick, the anointing of the sick, death and resurrection, baptism and the Eucharist. All of this stuff goes on and on. The words and deeds of Jesus not only sanctified creation, sanctified time, sanctified human history, but they become these moments of density. I like that phrase. In the, that gets passed over into the life of the church. The sacramental logic inscribed in the Trinitarian revelation is prolonged and condensed in the sacraments. So Christ manifests himself in these things. But the only reasons why the sacraments are anything is because of the incarnation. And that's where this whole thing, um, this subsection C ends in with reflecting on how Jesus doesn't just communicate something to us important about God. He communicates God's own presence. He communicates the very communion that he has with the Father in the Spirit. That is why this is so essential. That's why mortal sin is so horrific. That's why hell is so awful. It's because Jesus is communicating to us not just immortality, like a bunch of vampires. I know it's a stupid analogy, but vampires are very popular. (laughs) He's not just giving us endless human life. He's allowing us to participate in in the interior communion of Father and Spirit and Son, what we call eternal life. Right? That's what the sacraments are meant to communicate to us, the very interpersonal relationship of God through Christ. That's the culmination of everything. God makes the acceptance of this gift dependent on the cooperation of the recipients. Oh, and so there we see Our Lady held up as the model disciple. There she stands at the culmination of Jewish history, and she says, let it be done unto me according to thy word. And so every disciple, right? God invites, invites, respects the freedom because God created freely. And so he won't redeem us, as St. Augustine says, with, he created us without us, but he won't redeem us without us. And so here we are. Here we are responding with consent to the Lord's plan. Amen. And that, those are the three paragraphs we're going to finish there.
Uh, what are we going to do for next week, Elmer? Uh, I'm going to take a nap. No. I'm going to take a nap because this is exhausting. No. No. We're going to do uh, D and E. And e. Yeah, D, D and e. e. So that'll close out 2.1. And then now we uh, 2.2 is very important because it kind of nails down how we're going to express this stuff theologically. But if we can understand that everyone out there is actually actively reading this document, don't just take our summaries for it because what we're doing is picking out sentences that we love and kind of going through this. Now, th- this is a longer document. But we really want to be able to ground this because if we miss this, we're going to miss the kerygma, the Catholic kerygma. We're, and I think we are in, in dangerous ways missing the Catholic kerygma. So our work for you, read D&E in chapter two. This way you'll get caught up. It'll probably take you about 15 minutes worth of reading. And I would encourage you, print it out, underline it, especially the parts that are difficult to understand. And hopefully we can provide some clarity going forward. Amen. Thanks uh, so much for listening in. As always, contact us anytime. God bless y'all. Adios. Adios.